0: We do appreciate the presence of each one today. I know we've got some who are out of town today. I know that and I think we've got some that are that are ill. I think we've got some COVID going around even uh, maybe three or four or five cases of that among our, our members these days. Other things going on in people's lives. but We do have some who are visiting with us today. We're really glad that you're here. I'll invite you to turn to the book of Psalms this morning. The book of Psalms. I appreciate those who have led us in our worship today and the good job that they've done and good participation by everyone here. Just uh, encouraging and and uplifting to be part of a worship service that is full of life and energy and vitality, and so appreciate it a great deal. When I was 21 years old, that's been a few years ago now, when I was 21 years old, I was starting, starting to preach a little bit. And in that summer of 1978, uh, I spent working with the church in Annandale, Virginia. I was uh, uh, kind of a young, a young guy just starting out, working there with the preacher. His name was Floyd Chapelier, and under the elders there, and they're giving me an opportunity that they, they sort of had a, a program from year to year and have young men come in and spend a summer with them and give them an opportunity to, to grow and to study and develop their ability. And so uh, I was privileged to do that. And that's in the Washington, D.C. area. So I spent the whole summer uh, near Washington, D.C. and went into the city, went into Washington, D.C. several times over the course of the city. But I, I don't know that I'll ever forget the first time that I went into Washington, D.C. and the first time that I saw from a little bit of a distance the monuments. Oh, it, it was impressive to me. And here I was, 21 years old, not, not a small child anymore, but 21 years old. I've heard about these buildings all of my life. Heard about the White House and the Capitol building and the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. And here, here they were before me. And it, it was an impressive sight to see. I, I, I remember that very well. Now, sir, There are places that have a special significance to us. And maybe the the monuments in Washington D.C. and and the various buildings. I can remember as a child, uh, being uh, living in in Illinois as a child, and uh, while we were there, from time to time, we would go down to St. Louis to see the Cardinals play, and just see seeing Bush Stadium. That's where Bob Gibson pitched, you know. That's where Lou Brock played, and and going to the games there, and is there the, the Gateway Arch is right there by the stadium, and. And that, that was an impressive, that was exciting. And then sometimes we'd go to Chicago to Wrigley Field. I don't know if you've ever been to Wrigley Field, uh, uh, one of the great uh, cathedrals of Major League Baseball. And you go to, go to Wrigley Field and you, you walk through the tunnel and you go out and there are the ivy-covered walls in the outfield. And you see the dirt and the green grass, and it's where Ernie Banks played, you know. It, it was just a special place. It still is a special place for a lot of people. Dustin and I were visiting with Sister Rutland and Steve not, not too long ago and she has on her wall a painting, not a photograph, but a painting there on the wall of her apartment of her home place where she grew up. It was painted by Mildred Ward and some of you might have known Sister Ward and it's, it's quite an impressive painting it, and that, that's a special place to her and you you may remember the place where you grew up. It might be a special place to you. We're going to look at the 84th Psalm. And in the 84th Psalm, we uh, have uh, recorded for us the impression of the temple on the mind of a pious and devout Jew. Just just imagine what would be going through the mind of a devout Jew as he goes to Jerusalem, maybe for the Passover, for Pentecost, or maybe just uh, 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 his own trip to Jerusalem, and he, he's traveling along the way, and he, he comes over the crest of the hill, and there it, there it is. There's the temple. Just think about how impressive that would be to him. It, it was an impressive building in and of itself from an architectural, uh, architectural point of view. You might remember when the temple was rebuilt, Solomon's temple was destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians, and then it was rebuilt about 70 years later or so, and how those who had seen Solomon's temple just kind of shook their heads and said, yeah, this is good, but it's not nearly as good as Solomon's temple was. Just imagine what that would have looked like, the gold and the the precious stones and the bronze and the columns and the, the building itself. The Bible tells us in Lamentations chapter 2 and verse 15 that the city was the perfection of beauty. City of Jerusalem, the perfection of beauty. And the temple, no doubt, would have been the major reason for that. It would have had more significance to the godly Jew because the temple was God's dwelling place. Not simply from an architectural point of view, but this is God's dwelling place. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 29, God says, I'm going to put my name there. I'll put my name there. He dwelt above the cherubim. We find that expression on a number of occasions in the Old Testament. And so think about that holy place and then the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, and the ark of the covenant, and the cherubim on the top of the ark of the covenant. And that's sort of, in a sense, the throne of God. Now... We know that God can be contained by, the, by heaven or the heaven of heavens, much less by a building made with hands, but in a sense, that's, that's God's dwelling place. He sits above the cherubim. In Exodus 25 and verse 22, God says, that's the place where I'm going to meet man for atonement. I'm going to meet man there in the temple. And so to the pious Jew, to the devout Jew, as he's walking to Jerusalem, walks over the hill, sees the temple, it's, oh, it's got to be an impressive sight, not just because of its physical structure, God is there. God's name is there. His dwelling place is there. His throne is there. That's where we and he meet together for atonement. It was the most sacred place of all. The city of Jerusalem is called the Holy City. (laughs) But the temple is the most holy place of all, isn't it? And for the devout Jew, it's the center of the world. This is the center of the world right here. Well, let's read the 84th Psalm. We're just going to read through it. It's a Psalm that's written, as you see in the introductory material, a a Psalm of the sons of Korah. We don't know much about the sons of Korah. So this is not a psalm of David, a psalm written by the sons of Korah. There are 11 other psalms attributed to the sons of Korah. So they may have been singers or musicians in the temple court. We're going to read about some of the descendants of Korah who worked in the temple. First Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 19. And the time that it was written is a little bit mysterious as well. In verse 9, the psalm is. Appeals to God to behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. And so it may be that it's written during the monarchy of some t- uh, sometime during the monarchy. We don't know exactly when, but the psalm expresses the strong desire the author has to go to the temple. So let's just read through it. It's just 12 verses. And we're going to draw our title from the first line How lovely is your dwelling place? And on the screen we're taking this from the English Standard Version. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So it's obvious that he's talking about the temple. He refers to the house of the Lord in verse four, the dwelling place of God in verse one. He longs for the courts of the Lord. Those would be the sort of the, 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 the area inside the temple walls that walled around the temple area, but, but outside the temple itself. And so the, the plaza or the courts of the Lord, he longs to be there. He pronounces blessing on those who hope to travel the highways leading to Zion. And and so you can see how he, well, in verse 1, I long for it, I yearn for it, I'm fainting to be there at the temple of the Lord. A pilgrimage is de- 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 uh, described in verse 7. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. Blessed are those who, they're thinking about their trip and, and making their pilgrimage to, to Zion, where the temple is. They're passing through the valley of Bacah, which may be the valley of sorrows or balsam trees. People are not quite sure which one. But they're passing through this, maybe this valley of sorrow, But it's a joy to them because they're on the way to the Lord. And so they make it a a spring, and early rain covers it with blessing. They get stronger and stronger as they get closer and closer to Jerusalem. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. And so he describes this, this trip, this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. We're going to select three images here, three statements in the psalm to highlight. The first one is this one, Blessed are those whose strength is in You's hearts are, or the first one is, is this one, Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At Your altars, O Lord, blessed are those who dwell in Your house ever singing Your praise. You know what that reminded me of when I read that? Just about every year when you look out here at the drive-through, the, the columns out there that on the other side, away from the door, almost every year, see, see some nests out there, some birds have built their nests out there, and you see the evidence of it on the driveway, you know. And, and, and he's thinking about that. It, he's been to the temple, and in the nooks and crannies of the, of the, uh, the temple area, birds have built their nests. And they're there singing to the Lord, you know. They're there singing their songs, and he imagines that. And here, the, the birds are there. they they made their home at the temple. They're singing songs to the Lord there at the temple. The birds are especially fortunate because they're at the temple all the time. They live there. They reside there. He's a little bit envious of the birds, isn't he? Oh, I wish I could be there like that. I wish I could make my nest there, and I would just continually worship the Lord just like these birds do. And you can see his his attitude about going to and being at the place of worship. The temple of the Lord. The second feature we'll highlight down in verse 10 For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. One day, one day at the temple is better than a thousand everywhere, anywhere else. Maybe you've seen the the bumper sticker. A bad day fishing. Is better than a, a good day anywhere else. <laughs> you know, kind of reminded me of that, except there are no bad days at the temple. One day at the temple, that's better than a thousand days anywhere. A thousand days at work, or a thousand days at the lake, or thousand, anywhere else. One day at the temple. That, that's just the attitude that he has. Of all the good and fun and productive days one could spend, none would be as pleasing to the author as a single day at the temple. He loves it, doesn't he? He loves it. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. Your version might say, I would would rather stand at the threshold of the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Again, the idea may be that I'd be glad to be the doorman there. If I could just have a job at... I I don't have to have a glamorous job. I'll take a lowly task. If I could just be the keeper of the door, the keeper of the threshold, that would be a great blessing. I would rather do that than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. Dwell in the tents of wickedness. And again, something like that, the pleasures of sin. You know what strikes me about all of this? It's just the positive attitude he has about going to the place of worship. Look how positive it is, just the positive attitude. In earlier part of of the psalm, he says, I'm going to sing for joy. Singing for, he's talking about the birds there, singing for joy at the temple. It's a joy to him. What a positive attitude he has about going to the place of worship. But you know, he doesn't long to go to the temple so he can study its architecture, does it? You know, this is such an impressive building. You know, the columns are built after this fashion. And, and you know, that's, that's, not his, that's not really his interest. Now, he might have been impressed by that, and I'm, no doubt all of us would have been. But the psalmist longs to be at the temple because God is there. That's where God is. It's God's dwelling place. It's God's house. It's God's court. And if God is there, that's where I want to be. Now, you know, the psalmist, he knows that God is everywhere. He knows that the temple doesn't confine, God is not confined to the temple, that, that God is there, but God is He knows that just as well as we know that. But he knows that God is at the temple in a special way. This is where we meet God in a special way. And so if God is there in that way, that's exactly where I want to be. Well, we want to draw from the psalm various ways that God is addressed or God is described. And there, there are several of these. Maybe you notice that as you read through the psalm, all the different ways that he refers to God and all the different ways that he addresses God. We're going to just note those and hope we, we can just be impressed with the nature of God. Why does he want to be there? Well, God is there. Well, who is God that I should be so impressed as that? Well, he's referred to as the Lord, actually several times through the psalm, but he's referred to as the Lord, verse 2. Yahweh, the I Am. This is, uh, uh, this is the name of God that God reveals to Moses at the burning bush when Moses says uh, to the Lord, When I go down into Egypt and, and my people ask me, Who sent you? What is his name? What shall I tell them? I Am. I AM that I AM. You tell them, I AM has sent you. And from that word, the name Jehovah or Yahweh is derived. It's the God who is always present with His people, always present with His people, and who always will be present with His people. It's the God that has led us out of Egypt. It's the God who has led us through the Red Sea. It's the God who is with us in the wilderness. It's God who provided for us and protected us and defeated our enemies. It's the God that has given us the land. It's the covenant God of Israel, the provider and the protector, the Lord. He's called the Lord God. God is a more general word for the deity, the supreme deity. And the word as used in the Bible conveys all that belongs to the concept of deity. It reflects his power and his strength. And the combination of these two, the Lord God, Yahweh God, Jehovah God, suggests that the ultimate deity, the supreme deity, the true deity, the one that possesses all authority, all power, and all strength is Jehovah our God. And so it takes a rather general word for God, but it makes it specific. The Lord. Yahweh is God. He's referred to as the Lord of hosts several times in the Psalm, verses 1, 3, and 12. And then you have this combination, the Lord God of hosts, there in verse 8. The hosts are the armies, uh, the occupants of heaven. All the angels, all the cherubim, all the seraphim, all the angelic beings, all the spiritual beings. He is their God, the God of all the armies of heaven. But so showing in a way, he's the God of all the armies of the earth as well. He's the God of all the hosts, all the armies. He's the supreme authority, the commander of all. He is the Lord of hosts. He's described as the living God in verse 2. You know, other gods have no life. They're false gods. (laughs) They they don't have life. They can't give life. But this God lives. He speaks. He acts. False gods don't live. Oh, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have hands, but they can't act. (laughs) They're not living gods. This is the living God. He lives, he sees, he hears, he speaks, he acts. He is the I am, the one who lives because he lives. He's self-existence and self-sustaining, whereas, of course, we depend on others. not, not him. He is life itself and the life giver, the only living God. There's only one living God. And it is the Lord God. Jeremiah 10 and verse 10 calls Him the true God, the living God. Daniel 6 and verse 26 refers to the living God who endures forever. Who is God? He is the living God. Not an abstract notion, you know, not, not a concept, not a philosophy. The living God who has life in Himself and gives life to others. It's the God of Jacob. You remember who Jacob is? You had Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then then his son Jacob. And then Jacob, of course, has 12 sons. And so Jacob stands at the headwaters of the nation of Israel. The 12 sons become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. You remember that. And so this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our forefathers, our patriarchs who entered into a covenant with him, and he with them. God promised them to make of their descendants a great nation, Israel, to give them a land to live in, and ultimately, through them, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so he is the God of the patriarch Jacob, but he's also the God of the nation that descended from that patriarch. And so Jacob's name is changed to Israel, And Israel, of course, is the name of the nation. And so when he says, the God of Jacob, what he's saying is, not only the individual named Jacob, our patriarch, but the, the whole nation that descended from him as well. He is our God, the God of the nation, the covenant God of Israel. And he also is described as my king and my God. We've already talked about what the name God or the word God suggests. We know what the king is. The king possesses all authority. He rules over all the earth. He rules over heaven and earth. Psalm 11 and verse 4 says, God's throne is in heaven. And you know, at times in the Bible, we get a glimpse of that throne. Not too long ago, we read or we studied from the book of Revelation. Remember Revelation chapter 4, the throne scene? Verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before him, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like the sea of glass, like crystal. At the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So he's the king. He's sitting on the throne. We see that in Revelation 4, Ezekiel chapter 1 as well. Isaiah chapter 6 has a description of the throne room of God. So the king has all authority. He sits on the throne. And yet here, what impresses me about this is he's my king. Now he's not just king which would be impressive enough. He's my king. He's my God. And so notice how personal that is, how individual that is. Not only is He the God of the universe, God of heaven and earth, not only is He the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, He's my God. (laughs) He's my king. And so this God is so great that He can rule over all the universe but he can rule over, tend to, take care of, provide, protect for every individual among his people. One of the impressive things about a study of the Psalms is how personal they are. And so the psalmists over and over again refer to my God, my Lord, my King, and we see it reflected here. Well, if you put all this together, God, who who is God? The supreme being who possesses all authority, commands all power and might, rules all the earth, the God of Israel, as well as the God of His people, individually and personally. And so why does this psalmist want to go to the temple? Why why is he envious of the birds who have their nests there in the temple area, maybe one of the nooks and crannies there, in the temple air. Why, why, why is he envious of them? They, they're there they're praising God and singing to him day after day after day. I want to be in his dwelling place. I want to be where he is. I want to praise him. Well, there's another question that's answered in the psalm. Not only who is God, but, but what has God done? And this helps us to understand why he wants to be there. Well, what what has he done? Well, as you go through the psalm, highlight these uh, uh, things as well. He gives us strength. Verse 5. He gives us strength. You know, God has always provided strength for his people. Look at the 44th psalm. We're going to read a few verses. Incidentally, this is another psalm written by the sons of Korah. O God, we've heard with our ears, our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, then you planted them, you afflicted the peoples, you spread them abroad. For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them, but your right hand and your arm in the light of your presence, for you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob through you. We will push back our adversaries through your name. We will trample down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Why do I want to? Because He strengthens us. He provides strength. He promises to be with His people. He promises to provide enough grace for them to endure. Deuteronomy 31 verse 8, It is the Lord who goes before you, who is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul reflects on, What he calls his first defense, and my first defense, verse 16 says, No one supported me, all deserted me, may it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Everybody else forsook me, but the Lord stood by me, and the Lord strengthened me. Why does this psalmist want to be in the presence of God, the God's dwelling place where God is worshipped? Because, you see, it's the Lord who gives him strength. A second reason or thing that God has done, He hears the prayers of His people, verse 8. We've talked about this quite a bit lately. God invites us to pray for Him, to pray to Him. That's remarkable in and of itself. God invites me to pray to Him, you know. You know, we, we count ourselves blessed and honored and favored when we get an invitation. Somebody invites us uh, to, to something and we feel kind of privileged, you know. God invites me to pray to Him. He, he wants us to pray. He asks us to pray. And He promises to hear. If you look at uh, 1 John chapter 5, there is a very, very comforting, encouraging, reassuring statement made there in verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So he hears the prayers of his people. That's why I want to be where he is. He acts as sun and shield, verse 11. I suppose the sun can stand for a lot of different ideas, including things like life. In order to live, you need the sunshine. And uh, it uh, refers to hope. You know, I've learned that everything looks better in the light of day. You know, that's one of the things I tell myself a lot. You know, everything's going to look better in the light of day. And so it represents hope, knowledge, vigor, stamina. And so God is all those things. He's the source of all those things to us. Life, hope, knowledge, vigor. And He's our shield. Obviously, we understand the meaning of that, don't we? He's our protector. He's the one who's going to protect us from the flaming darts of the the evil one. And so he's our son and our shield. He gives favor and honor. Some versions say grace and glory. He bestows favor on his people. I think this expression was used back in Psalm 44, a passage we just read a moment ago. But God bestows grace or favor on His people. He blesses them. He equips them, enables them, empowers them. He raises them up. Though they may be lowly, He forgives. He gives us favor and honor. As for us today, He has raised us up and makes us sit in heavenly places with Christ. Well, that's... That's favor and honor, isn't it? And then, he does not withhold any good thing from his people. We go through some hard times. You know, we, we go through difficult times. We, I don't want to minimize that at all. I mean, we go through some really hard times. But you know, God doesn't withhold any good thing from us. Remember, James chapter 1 says, Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, Paul says, He gives us all things to enjoy. And that's said in the context of physical blessing, material blessing. Charge those who are rich to be willing to share, to be generous. God's given us all these things to enjoy. The result of these things is, verse 12, He trusts in the Lord. He trusts in the Lord. Of course He trusts in the Lord. The Lord is His strength. The Lord listens to His prayers he provides for him, he protects him, he bestows favor and honor, he doesn't withhold any good thing, and so, like a little child who trusts in a loving father, he trusts in the Lord. God has proven himself over and over again, so that the psalmist has complete confidence in him, no matter what the circumstances may be. And so the author longs to go to the temple, to the place of worship, Not to the splendor of the building itself, but because God is there in a special way. And of course, he knew God wasn't limited to the temple. God is everywhere, but He's there in a special way. And when he reflects on who God is and what God has done, well, he wants to go. He has this very strong desire to go. You've you've already run ahead of me, I know, haven't you? (laughs) Because the application of all of this is, do we have this same kind of desire to go to the place of worship? You know what I want us to do, is, what I want us to do is develop this kind of positive attitude about going to worship. Now so many times we see worship as a, an obligation or something like that, and it's, something, it's a duty that we have to perform, let's, let's see if we can develop this kind of positive attitude and thinking about who God is and what God has done. And this is a great opportunity for us to go and express our devotion and our praise and our gratitude to God in a special way. Of course, we realize that God is everywhere, and we can worship God wherever we might be. But over and over again, in the Psalms especially, it seems to me that the authors long to be with God's people, worshiping God and lifting up their voices in praise. We want to develop that kind of positive attitude. uh, Unfortunately, not everybody has that. There are people driving by right here on the interstate. Maybe some of them are on their way to worship, I don't know. But I imagine some of them are giving absolutely no thought whatsoever to the things we've talked about today. Church attendance is lower today in the United States than at any other previous time. About one in three go to church every week. Now in the South, it's about half, about 50% of the people go to church once a week so that's that's better but even that's down from probably 65 70 percent in the past there are people who go through life never thinking about or not giving much thought to who god is and what he's done and then not even everyone who attends a service has the desire that the psalmist had they might attend out of habit or obligation or Parents drag them to church. How many times have you heard somebody reflecting on their youth say something like that? You know, my parents drag me to church. Seems to be a trendy thing to say. Drag me to church every week, you know. But I've outgrown that now. I, I kind of do what I want to do, you know, as if that were a good thing. Maybe that you come because your spouse will complain if you don't. But, you know, habits can be broken. It might take a little while. And one day you're going to get out from under the oversight of your parents, and you can do what you want to do. And you know what? If your spouse is going to complain when you don't go to church, you know, all you got to do is just weather the storm. Just weather the storm. There'll be a lot of complaints at first, but eventually after a month or two, they'll, they'll diminish, and you can pretty much kind of do what you want to. If we don't have this strong desire to be where the Lord is, When these other things, when they fade and wane and diminish, then where will we be? Well, we won't be where the Lord is. We won't be at the place of worship. There are lots of reasons to go to worship. A lot of good reasons. Bring our children to Bible study. That's a great region. I enjoy the activities that we do there. I like to sing, you know. And so I can go and I can sing and I can sing out and and I I enjoy listening to a good sermon. And we get one every now and then, you know. That that might be kind of our attitude. You know, I'm encouraged at church or I'm motivated to do and to be a good person. And I like being with other Christians. And all of those are good reasons, but they shouldn't be the primary reason we're here. You see, the psalmist longed to go to the house of the Lord Because that's where God is. And that's where I I want to be. We want to develop this kind of positive attitude about going to the house of the Lord. We find ourselves and our interests fading. Consider these two things. Consider who God is. He's the Lord. The Lord God. The Lord of hosts. The living God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of Jesus Christ, the covenant God, the faithful, loyal God. He's my king and my God. And think about what God has done. He gives strength. He hears prayers. He acts as our Son and shield. He gives grace and glory. He provides every good thing, and as a result, we can trust in Him completely. Now think about not only what God has done throughout Bible history, think about what He's done in your life. Think about what He's done in your life. Where would you be without the Lord? And so maybe that'll help us develop this positive attitude about worship. Which one is found in spiritually healthy people? The positive attitude toward worship or a sense of legal obligation? A couple of observations here near the close. The things we've talked about, who God is and what God has done, you see, that will never change. That never changes. Those things will always be. They are constants. And they'll help us retain the desire to go to the house of the Lord when all other things fail. You see, when our circumstances in life fail, whether they're good or bad, when they change, when they go up and down, if they go down and get to, have a tendency to get to search. But, but God is always who God is, and God has always done the things that he, He's done. So these things are always true, and we can count on them. If we're depending on our circumstances, our good circumstances, to motivate us to worship, what are we going to do when the circumstances are bad? Our, 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 our foundation has to be somewhere else. And when people fail us, which people will fail us time after time, after time, after time. It may be that you've known people that you had great confidence in, that you trusted, you just thought very highly of, and then you find they have feet of clay and they have major moral faults in their lives, and you get discouraged. You see, our foundation cannot be on men because that changes. Now that's, that's as unsubstantial as clay, the clay we're made out of. <laughs> But you see, God is always who God is. And God has always done and will always do do the things that He does. Second observation is this. You know, these things are no less true on Sunday night and Wednesday night as they are on Sunday morning. Did you know that? (laughs) Now, it's not that God is is the Lord God on Sunday morning, but He's something less on Sunday, Sunday night. He's something even less on Wednesday night, you know. He's the same God Sunday night and Wednesday night. And what He's done for us doesn't change Sunday night and Wednesday night. And so if we have a strong desire to worship God because of who He is and what He does, why should we come at those opportunities? If we want to be like the birds who make their nests in the courts and sing praise to God continually every day, all day long, (laughs) well, uh, Sunday night and Wednesday night opportunities for us to go and worship God and praise God and thank God for what He's done. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 we're taught not to forsake our own assembling together and sometimes it may seem like this passage hangs on us like a ball and chain. It's just an oppressive weight we're required to carry and we do it but we do it with all the resentment we can muster. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, I, I gotta go. You know, I gotta attend. Let me see if I can drag myself to another assembly. You know, that's the command that I've got to obey. And I'm gonna do it with just as much resentment as I can, I can stir up. Well, if that's your situation, consider what we've said here. Just think, think about this. We wanna develop this kind of attitude about worship, we wanna be there as often as we can be because of who God is, and because what God has done in our lives, individually and personally. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we we bow before you, we praise you, we honor you, we glorify you because of who you are, the Lord God, the King. We bow before you, we recognize your authority and your power and your strength. Our, our Father, we are, are thankful that You're our God, not, not as a, simply as a group, but You're the God of each one of us. And, and again, Father, we praise and glorify Your name. We're thankful, Father, for the things You've done for us throughout all time and in our lives individually, all the blessings that You've bestowed upon us, that You've given us every good thing, even when our lives are difficult and we go through hard times. We know, Father, that You're constant that You're with us, that You won't forsake us, that You won't fail us. And so, Father, we trust in You, have total and complete confidence in You as our God and our loving Father. Our Father, we pray that You will help us develop and mature spiritually, that You will help us see the opportunities that we have to come together with those of like faith and to worship you and to sing to you and to praise your name. And help us, Father, to develop this kind of positive attitude about these opportunities so that we look forward to them and we want to participate in them every opportunity we may have. Our Father, we ask you to go along with us throughout the way, provide the things we need, watch over us and protect us. And Father, we look forward to the great day when we will be together with You. You've made all of this possible through the gift of Your Son, Jesus Christ, and the atonement that He made for us on the cross. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. If you're with us this morning,